welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 40. Varus, give me back my legions. So last episode, we dealt with the massive battle of the Teutonburg Forest, where three Roman legions under Varus were wiped out to a man. Well, that's according to some of the sources, anyway. However, this is not exactly correct. As we talked about, some people survived the battle. I mean, there's no way these historians got any information about the battle unless someone was able to tell them about it. Now, we know more about these survivors thanks to the slaves and the escapees that are mentioned spreading the word of the disasters in the years afterwards. And in fact, some of these people will be mentioned up to 40 years after the battle happens. No matter the case, the disaster was complete for the Romans. The governor was dead. And immediately after the battle, two of the three eagles were in the hands of the Germans. Now, we don't know which two were immediately captured, but we are told that a third was taken by the Roman standard bearer who fled into the swamps and the bog. Realizing that he wasn't going to be able to get away, he broke off the eagle from the top of the staff and then jumped into the deepest hole he could find, drowning himself and hoping to take the eagle with him away from the barbaric Germans. Despite his sacrifice, the Germans find it. And they send out each of these eagles to a different tribe. To the Brukteri, to the Marsi, and the Chassi. Now the Brukteri and the Marsi, those were understandable. They had been there since the beginning. They had played a very important role in setting up this ambush. No problem with that. But the Chassi don't make as much sense because they were very pro-Roman. In fact, they could have caused Arminius a lot of trouble had they been informed about this plan. So why do the Chassi get an eagle? Well, it could be that he wanted to form an alliance with this tribe and hoped that by giving them an eagle showing that he could defeat the Romans, they would switch sides. Another argument is that the Shasi actually do decide to join Arminius at the last minute and they're one of the reinforcing tribes that arrive on the second and third day. And so this eagle could have been a gift for their service and also serve as a reminder that they were now supporting the Germans and could not turn on Arminius or the Trusi. Whatever the case, the Shasi receive an eagle and the rest of the loot is all split up among all the victorious tribes. This was the highest amount of Roman loss since the Battle of Carre in 53 BC. So there was a ton of loot to go around. Loot wasn't just in the weapons, it wasn't just in the gold, 
wasn't just in the goods that they were bringing with them. It was also in the people that they've captured. Not everyone died in this battle on the Roman side. Many of them probably surrendered or were knocked out and captured later. Or tried to flee and were captured. What happens to these people? Well, for these prisoners, they are in a very dangerous situation, especially right after the battle ends, because the Germans have a bloodlust that runs through them. We're told by Flores, quote, they put the eyes out of some of them, the Roman prisoners, and cut off the hands of others, and then they sewed up the mouth of one of them after cutting out his tongue, exclaiming, at last, you viper, you have ceased to hiss. The body, too, of the consul himself, which the soldiers had buried, was disinterred, unquote. And so for many of these soldiers, well, they are brutalized by the Germans. They are dismembered. They have their tongues cut off. They're disfigured. All in the bloodlust in the rage that the Germans can now freely give out to these oppressors. And for many of these Romans, they'll die during this torture. Others will die pretty quickly afterwards as sacrifices. But for some, they would survive this period of bloodlust, this period of sacrifices to the gods. And they would see the remainder of their lives as slaves, unless they had a chance of escaping or being ransomed later. So being caught alive by the Germans during this post-battle scene is not the greatest. Being dead in this post-battle scene for the Romans doesn't mean you get off easy. As I mentioned at the very end of that quote, the consul, the governor, he's dug up again by the Germans. And Varus is paraded among the Germans, showing that they have killed him, they have defeated the oppressor, and then they cut off his head. They chop it right off, and they celebrate with that as well. Now, Cutting off the head was important for several reasons. First, it would provide proof that the Germans had killed Varus. If anyone had any questions or wondered if he survived, then Armenius could just take out Varus's head and say, Hey, look, see what I have? Proof. A lot easier to carry around a head than a body. Second, the head was believed to be the seat of the soul. And taking this head of an enemy would allow you to possess the soul, granting you spiritual power and denying that person a chance to go on in their afterlife. Mutilating the body and separating the head from it would just keep him away from his afterlife and give you the sweet taste of revenge over a governor who had been overstepping his bounds the entire time that he had been here. His was not the only body that was destroyed, though, that was mutilated of the dead. 
You see, years after the battle, the Roman soldiers will come across the battlefield itself, and we're told by them that, quote, on the trunks of trees, skulls were impaled. In the neighboring groves were barbarian altars at which they had sacrificed the tribunes and the first-ranked centurions. And survivors of the disaster reported this. How many gibbets there had been for the captives which were in the pits, and how in his haughtiness he, Arminius, had mocked the standards and the eagles of the empire. End quote. And so the Romans, they stumble across the battlefield later, and they can see that the dead were not buried, but set up in glory for the Germans. Many joined Varus in having their heads cut off and nailed to trees. Others were thrown into a pit or stacked in an altar to one of the Germanic gods. And the survivors of that battle explained to them what the Germans were doing and how Arminius was mocking the Romans for their failure. If this is all true, that means the Germans, after the battle, started to strip the dead, started to sacrifice a couple of the prisoners, and were having a good time. Not what we would consider a good time, but for them, were having a good time. Now, these sacrifices were probably to their war god, um, Tiavaz, or maybe Donar. Don't know enough about Germanic religions to really say why. Unfortunately, we have a large gap of knowledge when it comes to north of the Rhine throughout the entirety of the Roman era. And so, we can only really guess at who they were sacrificing to, how they were doing it, why they were doing it. But the head was important. Stacking the bodies into some sort of altars were also part of it. The dead and live had to be sacrificed to the gods in honor of this. All of these seem to be a part of it, and we can see some connections with other religious practices. But overall, what we get is that this was a battlefield shrine. They turned this entire battle into a shrine to their gods for giving them this victory. And we're pretty sure that these shrines weren't set up to mock the Romans because they're probably hoping the Romans would never make their way here again. Remember, the Teutonberg Force is pretty far away from where the Romans are supposed to be. And if the Germans are expecting the Romans to come here again, then things have to be really dire. Their rebellion has to be failing. Instead, this is completely religious. There's just no propaganda value in it for mocking the Romans. It's to praise their own gods. Now these shrines are not uncommon. We have found them before. For instance, in France, they have found a site near ribemont sur ancre and I'm really sorry if I butchered that pronunciation, uh, but this site dates back near the 3rd century BC and held a large deposit of bones 
of about 200 to 250 individuals. This also included weapons and shields, as well as their bodies. Now, it's believed that this site is a trophy site and was a way of showing off. All the bodies at the site had their heads cut off, and its layout corroborates many of the features that were mentioned in the post-Battle of the Teutonburg Forest. Now, to be fair, this shrine would have been Gallic, not Germanic. So, it could be completely different in its meaning and its setup. But because these two are neighbors, and they've swapped territory and people in the past, it's highly likely that they shared some of the same ideals when it came to setting up battle shrines. The one thing that is massively different between the two sites is that there are a lack of weapons and armor mentioned at the Teutonburg site. Now this could be because the Germanic tribes were a lot more pragmatic than the Gauls and wanted to use the weapons for themselves because their smithy work was not the best. Let's be honest, it wasn't the best. And the Romans had the best armor out there, and the best weapons. We've also found some weapons and armor up further north in the boats located in the moors that we've discussed in our earlier episode, and that could be another possibility, that they took the armor and the weapons home as trophies and then used them as sacrifices to the gods later. But another possibility is that they did leave them there as part of the shrines. But the Romans, when they arrived, they gathered all the weapons. They gathered all the armor. Because they didn't want to leave it there. They wanted it to be brought home. And so the lack of debris could just be due to the fact that the Romans were tidying up after themselves. No matter the case, the Germans spend the next couple of days sacrificing people, setting up this altar, either gathering the weapons for their own use, or as loot to take home, or setting it up in, within the altar itself. question is, what is going to be done with these prisoners? What's going to be done with those who aren't immediately sacrificed? They are going to be leaving our story, and so I figured we should talk about them first before we continue on with the timeline. Well, some of these prisoners feared what the Germans were going to do to them. And so even though they survived being sacrificed, they decided that it would still be better to die than to risk going with them. We're told that one of these prisoners, Claudius Callius, who could maybe be a relative of the chief centurion of the 18th, took his chains and cracked his own skull open rather than being taken by the Germans. He wasn't the only one. We're told that a couple of others joined him, killing themselves rather than being taken by the Germans and living their life as slaves. Those who didn't do this, they became trophies of war. And as I mentioned earlier, 
we would run into them later on in the record. Some of them will be sold back to the Romans. One group, in fact, will be sold back 40 years later under the Emperor Claudius. By that time, at best, they've got to be in their 60s. And they've probably forgotten most of what they remembered about home. Two-thirds of their life has been spent in the quote-unquote barbarian territory. How much of that has rubbed off on them? And how much of their own culture, of their own lives, have they forgotten? Who knows? But these who are rescued, who are ransomed back to the Romans, all that awaits them is a life of shame. For any who are ransomed after the battle, they are never allowed to cross into Italy again. They are marked as cowards for not joining their brethren and dying in the forest. And they will have to spend the rest of their lives with this mark and stay within the provinces of the Roman Empire. The rest who do leave the the forest, but never make it back to Rome. They either died as slaves or died later on as sacrifices to the gods. And that is the end for our Roman prisoners. They are now out of the scene. Things look really, really good. Varus is dead. Three of the five legions have been destroyed. Not wiped out to a man, but have been destroyed as a fighting unit. But it's not over yet. Arminius can't rest on his victory. First, yes, he has defeated 60% of the Roman forces. But there's still 40% of that still out there that could form up and fight him. And they are in Germania. They're not back in Italy. They're there at his doorstep. And so Arminius has to quickly act. He has an advantage, though. The Roman forces who aren't involved in the battle, who aren't either running in the bog, lying dead at his feet, or being marched away as prisoners, don't know what has happened. No one knows what has happened. That's not going to last forever. Eventually, someone is going to make it out of this forest, out of the bogs, and find a Roman patrol, find the nearest fort, and spread the alarm. But for now, he has the element of surprise. He has the enemy down 60% without them even knowing about it. And so, Arminius gathers his forces and he prepares the march towards the Rhine. But before he leaves, he takes the head of Varus, and he gives it to a messenger. And this messenger goes eastwards, to the Marocomani. There, they would arrive to the king of the Marocomani, Marobudus, and present to him the head of Varus, the governor of Germania, to show that Arminius had been successful. To present him as a token of gratitude from Arminius 
and to hope to build an alliance between the two factions. Now, if you remember, Marabutus has one of the largest and most well-trained armies in the region that's not Roman. This army was so dangerous that Rome had tried to wipe it out before, but had been stopped at the last second due to the Illyricum revolt. So if Arminius could get Marabutus, if he could get the Marcomanni on his side, then Rome would have to split their attention. They would have to send some troops to deal with Marabutus and not effectively deal with the problems in Germania. For Arminius, this is a very smart move. What wasn't part of his plan was Marabutus' response. Marabutus refuses. In fact, he takes the head from the messengers and he sends it to Rome out of respect. Now, while this was the absolute worst thing he could do for Armenius, it was probably the best thing that Marabutus could do for himself. You see, if he had joined in with Armenius, if he said, yes, this is it, this is go time, let's go, then all he's doing is he's bringing the Roman legions against himself. And Armenius has nothing that he can offer Marabutus in return. Armenius's coalition army would be worthless trying to defend Marokomani territory because they don't want to go there. They would turn around and go home as soon as they realized that they were going to go help Marabutus. However, if Marabutus decided to offer his condolences to Rome and play the part of a concerned neighbor, well, then Rome won't send eight legions rushing into the Marokomani. And it would buy him more time to build up his forces and his control over the territory. This is extremely bad for Armenius because... Once this head gets to Rome and they realize that Marabutus isn't going to join Armenius, they can focus everything upon this rebellious Germanic general. While the messengers are on their doom mission, Armenius pushes west. He heads towards the Rhine. His objective is to wipe out all the remaining Roman troops within the region, evict them from the territory, and set up new defenses. This campaign is extremely annoying because we know so little about it from the actual record. Most of our evidence comes from the sites. Take, for instance, the town of Valdegrans. It was established around 4 BC, and it was a flourishing town when all signs of habitation abruptly ended in 9 AD. This is all from the digs, nothing in the record itself. But we don't find anything that dates past 9 AD. No coins have been found that have been minted past the year 9 AD. And it probably means that the settlers either had to abandon the town and panic, or were surprised by Arminius and his troops and were wiped out. At the excavation site, they have found a heavy layer of ash meaning that the town was probably set on fire. They don't find a lot of weapons. They don't find a lot of defenses. They just find 
a burnt-out town that stopped existing within the span of one year. Now, the town being set on fire has me leaning to the idea that the Germans got a hold of town and burnt it down. There's a strong brutality from the Germans during this campaign and during the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest. Remember how I was describing what they were doing to some of the prisoners after the battle. They are furious with the Romans. They have had years under their occupation. Years of brutality from the Romans. If you like the Romans, you really need to study how they ran their empire. It was not one of, of nicety. It was one of brutality. And Germania, with all of its rebellions, with all of its attempts to stand up for itself, it was put down several times. And quite harshly. And so now that the tables have turned, now that the Romans are on the run, you can expect that the Germans are letting out all this pent-up rage that has been building up for decades. We have found in the center of this town a large bronze statue of Augustus. Something that was starting to be very common for the Romans. And this would have stood in the forum. At this site, it has been smashed to bits. The Germans don't recognize Augustus. The Germans don't recognize that Rome can be here. They will destroy everything and anything that is Roman. They will purge the land and clean it. And this is going throughout the entire region. Now, this is just one of many sites that has this going on, where we find habitations stopping around 9 AD. Signs of struggle, signs of fire, signs of either rioting or public damage of some sort. This campaign is a massive success for Armenius. We're not told of any significant major resistance except for one. But all the other forts, all the other patrols, all the other towns east of the Rhine start to fall. If you're wondering how far Armenius was able to get before the Romans were able to set up defenses, realize the town Valdegrimes, the one that we've been talking about, that's about 220 miles from the sites that the battle could have happened at. That's 11 day straight march from the battlefield to the town. No stops. This should tell you how devastating it is in this campaign. The Romans aren't being able to do anything. They would have had at least 11 days to prepare to defend this town. Probably more because Arminius didn't just make a straight beeline to Valdegrimes. There is something else that we should take into account. It's 11-day march. We should expect some resistance, right? That's if Arminius is the one who sets this town ablaze. This town is located in the territory of the Chattai, who, as we've mentioned before, were loyal Germans, to the Romans at least. 
now that the tide has turned, there's a good chance that the Chatai are the ones who are burning these villages, who have now turned on the Romans as word is spreading about the debacle in the forest. We know for a fact that several of these tribes do this, as the Sicambri, who are located right along the Rhine, rise up in rebellion as word spreads of Arminius's success, which blocks several important bridges and passings along the Rhine. Now this changes several things. Instead of it being Arminius who's just sweeping through the territory, instead, what we can see is happening is that maybe riders are being sent out, or maybe word is just spreading from mouth to ear about the success in the forest and other tribes are now flipping. And while the Romans are quickly trying to deal with Armenius, who is a known threat and are trying to organize their forces, the people around them, the people that they've come to trust, now turn on them. An entire region goes from being peaceful, being threatened by an outsider, to joining him. And this town that should have been safe, 11 days march from Arminius, is now on the front lines without knowing it. Now, I did mention that Arminius's campaign was extremely successful except for one place. And this is the one place that we have a lot of detail about. Because, of course, the Romans want to focus on the one thing that, hey, it kind of worked out in our favor. This is Fort Alicia, under the command of Lucius Cadicius. Now, Lucius Cadicius, he was part of the 19th Legion, and for some reason, he had stayed behind. Really lucky for him that he stayed behind. This fort is located about 120 miles away from the nearest battlefield site. And Lucius got word ahead of time that Arminius was on his way, and he began to prepare some defenses. He didn't have too long. Arminius did head there as soon as he could, as Fort Elysio was a moderately strong fort within the region. It also would serve as a rallying point for all the Roman troops who were spread out through the territory. Remember, Varus had spread out his men to act as a police force. They were dealing as squads more than as cohorts and legions. They needed time to get together, and they also needed a place that they could get together. Taking out Fort Alicio would help Arminius keep the Romans disorganized. And so Lucius, as he's preparing defenses, he sees a large... Germanic force gather outside of his walls. But unlike the other forts, he's being able to hold out. Because the Germans have a major flaw with their strategy. The Germans have never developed a siege doctrine. They don't have the patience, they don't have the weaponry to conduct a proper siege. And so they are just sitting outside the walls of this Roman fort. Dio tells us, quote, 
the barbarians occupied all the strongholds save one. Their delay at which prevented them from either crossing the Rhine or invading Gaul. Yet they found themselves unable to reduce this fort because they did not understand the conduct of sieges. And because the Romans employed numerous archers who repeatedly repulsed them and destroyed their large numbers. Unquote. So what Dio is telling us is that first, Fort Elysio seems to be the exception to the rule rather than the actual rule itself during this campaign. Somehow Lucius was able to get word in time to set up his defenses. All the other forts fell immediately. Maybe Fort Elysio was isolated enough that there weren't any local German tribes to attack it. Maybe they were able to keep the local Germans on their side. We're not sure. For whatever the case, this is the only fort that doesn't fall, and probably the only fort that wasn't tricked and attacked by locals rather than Arminius himself. And what the Germans do is they just constantly attack the fort. They don't have weapons to bring down the walls. They don't have the time to set up a proper siege. They want to keep moving. And Lucius has prepared for this. We're told that he actually brought down all the trees surrounding the fort, keeping a nice, clear, open view on all four sides. This would allow him and his archers to pick off any Germans trying to get close. Rather smart move. However, eventually, what happens with every siege is that the defender starts running low on food. And so, Caduceus, he tries to bluff his enemies. He assembles all the prisoners that he's taken. And he makes it very clear to them that they have plenty of food to last a couple of months. And that reinforcements are on their way. He then cuts off the hands of the prisoners. Which was common, so that way they couldn't fight again. And he sent them out to the Germans. Now, sending prisoners back to the enemy with false information, that is something that has been done throughout time. You hope that the enemy will fall for it. Well, Armenius didn't. Instead, he called Caduceus's bluff, and he raised the heads of the captured Roman soldiers that they still had, because apparently they keep the heads around, and they propped them on spears, and held them and danced around the fort. And then he sent an ultimatum to Lucius, saying, Surrender now, or this is your fate. Caduceus believed that if he surrendered, that would still be his fate, and he refused. He said, No. Screw you. I'm staying in my walls. And he waited. And Arminius waited. Both of them waiting for an opportunity. Arminius for Caduceus to finally break, to finally snap and either try to break out or die of starvation. And Caduceus waiting for the perfect opportunity to escape. And unfortunately for Arminius, Caduceus wins. Because a massive storm hits late one night and Lucius takes his chance and breaks out of the fort. 
Now, this breakout was very desperate in its nature. From the site, we have found supplies and money buried to keep out of the hands of the Germans. In fact, we have found some expensive pottery vessels whose owners scratched their names into the glaze so that if they could ever come back, they could find them. We also have found over 3,000 coins, all of which, of course, date before or during the year 9 AD. Now, as the Romans were evacuating, they were able to make it through the first and the second lines, but Arminius was always a careful planner. And on the third line, the Romans get caught. However, German indiscipline sets in, and Arminius isn't there to keep them focused on the goal. Instead of attacking the citizens and the soldiers, which would put up a fight and probably, from the looks of them, not have too much on them, the Germans realize if they're out here, that means the fort's unguarded, which means all their loot is in the fort. And they abandon Lucius and his escapees, and they attack the fort instead. Arminius, of course, is furious at this, but he's not there. He's at his tent just hearing about the news when his men are rushing into the fort itself. And Caduceus and his survivors are able to flee. Now, not all of his men do escape with him. Some of them stay behind in the fort, probably to buy time to the fleeing citizens and troops. Because if they hadn't been caught that night, and the Germans wake up in the morning, they don't see anyone in the fort, then Arminius could organize a search party to go hunt down Caduceus. So these people behind were probably to act as a front to make Arminius think that they were still within the fort itself. It turned out to be pointless because the Germans had found Caduceus as he was trying to escape. And so these troops that were left behind were overwhelmed by the Germans. At the site, they found 24 bodies within a giant kiln that would have been used to fire pottery within the fort. These 24 bodies weren't there by accident, nor were they there to be cremated after they were dead. These bodies were Roman prisoners captured at the fort who were taken by the Germans thrown into this giant oven and cooked alive. It's a terrible fate. It was probably one shared by many who fell under the hands of the retributing Germans. Now, despite the fact that they lose the fort, despite the fact that some of them suffer this terrible fate, the Romans consider it a success because Caduceus is able to escape. He was the leading officer in Germany at this point when he escapes. Think about that. He is a third-ranking officer within a destroyed legion. And he is the highest-ranking officer left at this point in the campaign. 
That means every single leader, every single officer who was on the east side of the Rhine after Arminius had won the Battle of Teutonburg Forest is dead or missing. Now, there's no way Lucius knew about this. He was probably hoping to go find another legion and hook up with them. And there was no way he could organize, even if he did know about this, the defense of the region because he was busy trying to defend his own fort. What this should tell you is that every commander, every officer, all the way from the lowest to the highest, was on their own, isolated, defending their post. No way of coordinating, no way of organizing. Until all that's left in charge is this third rank officer. Now Dio tells us that because of the defense of this fort, it slows Arminius down enough that he doesn't break across the Rhine and attack Gaul. That's a valid point, except that might not have been the case. Arminius might not have wanted to cross into Gaul for a few reasons. First, if he did so, then Rome would definitely attack and wipe him out. I mean, they were probably going to do so anyway, but they would have no choice if he kept pushing his luck. He may have been hoping that if he just held the Rhine, stayed on the eastern side of the Rhine, Rome would just give up. They would accept their losses and move on. Crossing the Rhine, raiding Gaul, that would just take it too far. Another problem was that his army was a coalition that had accomplished its goals. It wiped out the legions in their territory. It had eliminated the Roman threat in Germania. How many of them were going to want to cross the Rhine when they had their old competition starting to brew up? Many would break away. They've gotten their revenge. They've fulfilled their bloodlust. Winter's coming. It's time to go home. And so while Dio tells us, hey, it's because of this brilliant defense of this fort that Arminius doesn't cross, I lean to the point that Arminius wasn't really wanting to cross. He just wanted to secure all the territory east of the Rhine and hold it. Keep the Romans at bay. Even if that's the case, Lucius's ability to escape was important because it's the first source that's able to give word to the 5th Legion located near the Rhine but on the Gallic side. There, General Lucius Nonius Asprenas, Varus's nephew, has been sitting on his butt. He has not organized any defense of the region. Now, it could be because no one has come up to him yet. Arminius's campaign, the rising Germanic rebels, have been so successful in their job that no one has escaped across the Rhine to inform Nonius what was going on. But that's a lot of luck for the Germans to have. Maybe because... Caduceus is the highest-ranking officer that we know to escape the region. Maybe Lucius Nonius Asprenius didn't want to believe what was going on. 
and didn't take the soldiers who escaped word for it. Rather believe that they were deserters. Wherever the case, he receives a lot of blame for how the campaign went after the Battle of Teutonburg Forest because he does not react to what Arminius is doing until every single fort is within Arminius's hands. But now Caduceus arrives with word. The 5th Legion has no choice. They gather their forces and they march to go protect whoever they can, find as many civilians and soldiers fleeing from the Germans and bring them safely back into Gaul. And Caduceus arriving and getting General Asperinius to organize would end any ideas Arminius had of crossing into Gaul. Because now the Romans would be ready. As Asperinius is preparing the defenses, he sends word back to Rome of what has happened. Now, we're not sure when word reaches Augustus, but we are told by Suetonius, quote, When the news of this came, he, Augustus, ordered that watch be kept by night throughout the city to prevent outbreak and prolong the term of the governors of the provinces, that the allies might be held to their allegiance by experienced men with whom they were acquainted. He also vowed great gains to Jupiter Optimus Maximus, in case the condition of the commonwealth should improve, a thing that had been done in the Kimbrit and Marsic wars. In fact, they saw that he was so greatly affected that for several months in succession, he neither cut his beard nor hair, and sometimes he would dash his head against a door crying, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions! And he observed the day of the disaster each year as one of sorrow and mourning. End quote. Dio tells us that, quote, Augustus, when he learned of the disaster of Varus, rent his garments, as some report, and mourned greatly, not only because of the soldiers who had been lost, but also because of his fear for the German and Gallic provinces, and particularly because he expected that the enemy would march against Italy and against Rome itself. End quote. So, if you haven't gathered, Augustus doesn't take this news rather well. Remember, he had nearly broken down during the Illyricum campaign. He didn't even trust his own stepson, forcing Germanicus to step in. Now, two entire provinces of the Roman Empire are in enemy control, and all the forces have been defeated, with three legions being completely wiped out. His response is multi-part. First part is clearly paranoia. Guards are sent out through the city. Keep the slaves in check. Keep the city from panicking. Allied troops, including German bodyguards, are kept in check and are watched by loyal Roman troops. Troops are sent north to immediately stop the possible invasion of Italy and Gaul. He's also extremely worried that Rome's going to fall again. He's telling everyone, oh my gosh, we're going to lose Golnex, and then Italy's going to fall, and then Rome's going to fall. Another part is hope. 
He sets up games and celebrations to bring the people's spirits up, to make them believe that Rome, just had it done in the past, would recover and come out victorious. And the last part is just craziness, grief. And clearly a mental breakdown at this point. He's mourning through his palaces. He's completely disheveled, disgruntled. He's wearing shredded clothes. He's not keeping his hair or his beard in check. He's screaming out, hitting himself on walls, cursing the name of Varus for the disaster. This is the emperor of the Roman Empire. This is not something that he's supposed to be doing. Now, to be fair to Augustus, his fear of an internal uprising was not completely crazy. As we talked about, tribes that are supposed to be extremely loyal to Rome probably switched sides after the success of the Teutonburg Force. That's why so many forts fell without a fight. He has hundreds or possibly thousands of auxiliaries from these loyal tribes within his army. And they have the same backstory as Arminius and maybe even have more reason to fight against the Romans than Arminius did. So they could turn at any moment and his army would suddenly be backstabbed by their own fellow troops. He also had something else to worry about. He has a bodyguard unit completely made up of Germans who have a strong personal relationship with him. They've been handpicked by Augustus, and they're probably, most of them, coming from the Batavian tribe, which has always had a strong relationship with the royal family. This group is about 500 strong. They're well-trained, and for them, they believe the emperor is the chief above all chiefs. But they are in the palaces. They're with Augustus at all time. Augustus is terrified. And these bodyguards come from the same group of the people who are now wiping out his legions. He doesn't trust them. So he disbands his bodyguard. And he places them under arrest. Eventually he'd come back to his senses and realize these guys would never, never betray me. They love me. We're family. And he'll reinstate them. But for now, he places them in prison. He doesn't trust them at all. This, this battle, for years afterwards, would stay with him, would haunt him. To hide away from his shame, he will disband the three legions involved in the battle. They can never be used again under his reign. The 18th would be briefly recreated by Emperor Nero, but would then immediately be disbanded by Vespian. So these three legions are never used again under Augustus and will only make a brief appearance later on. For Augustus, this is, this is the worst news he could get. Gaul is threatened. Italy is threatened. Germania, which he had high hopes for, that was his favorite stepson's territory, is up in flames. 
three of his legions are out and countless more civilians soldiers from the other two legions are missing presumed dead what's to be done well we'll have to find out in two weeks do it for this episode I hope you all enjoyed it before we end this episode I want to thank Brenda Wass for your support for donating to the show Uh, the money has actually gone to be used to purchase some new books for research if you would like to be like Brenda you can go to our website and donate to the show or buy our merchandise you can also support the show by leaving a review on iTunes Spotify or wherever you find the show. This helps spread the word about the show. Alright, thank you everyone. I will see you guys in two weeks when we discuss what the Romans do to get revenge and the problems that surround the history of the Battle of Teutonburg Forest.